The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. I think this actually reflects why we've seen a coup now. Clearly, the coup has really brought serious economic devastation for the entire country, and the military itself will also not benefit from this. And that, to me, is the key, because they're not primarily motivated just by economic advantage as well. But as a systematic military institution, it is driven by their own identity and their own perception of what the Myanmar uh, modern nation state should look like. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. On February 1st, 2021, the Burmese military, known as the Tatmadaw, staged a coup d'etat. It caught most of the world off guard because Myanmar had undergone a process of political liberalization, beginning with a new constitution in 2008, elections in 2010, and the release of Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi from house arrest. Fast forward to November 8, 2020. Aung San Suu Kyi leads the National League for Democracy to a second consecutive landslide election victory. But underneath the surface, this was never a democracy. The Tatmadaw never fully surrendered power, so it's not a complete surprise they chose to reverse the progress made over the past 10 years. I reached out to Roger Lee Wong to better understand the politics and history of Myanmar. He is the author of The Paradox of Myanmar's Regime Change. He offers an extensive account of the political situation leading up to the recent coup. This episode offers a deep dive maybe the deepest dive I've come across in a podcast into Myanmar's modern history, along with a biographical sketch of Aung San Suu Kyi and an account of the National League for Democracy. Roger introduces many important figures, different ethnic groups, and other details, so feel free to follow along with the transcript available at democracyparadox.com. You can also leave comments to fill in the gaps we may have missed, or even mention me on Twitter at DemParadox. You can also email me at democracyparadoxblog at gmail.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Roger Lee Wong. Roger Lee Wong, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thanks for having me. Well, Roger, Myanmar, it's been in the news quite a bit. There's a lot of topics that I really 
really want to discuss with you. And I know that your book came out before the coup, but there's so much to discuss before it, so much to discuss after. So the first thing that I want to get out of the way is about the Tatmada. I, I know that it's the armed forces. It's effectively the military, but it seems to be so much more than that. For instance, you write, given its historical roots as a nationalist force, the Tatmada was never simply an instrument of war, but was a political institution invested in the administering of the state. Can, can you tell us more? Who are the Tatmada? Okay. So the history is that it is basically Lee founding army that was seen as the anti-colonial nationalist heroes. There's this myth that they were the founding fathers of a contemporary modern Myanmar. They were first anti-colonial. They fought against the British. They were actually trained by the Japanese. And then they rebelled against the Japanese as well. So there's all this history of the Tatmadaw as the premium founding institution that was responsible for Myanmar's independence from colonial powers. But there's a key figure called An San, who is considered the founding father of both the Tatmadaw, so the, the Myanmar military, as well as independent Burma, or as we now know as Myanmar. So Tatmadaw has always this kind of prestige, at least in this historical narratives. It's been involved beyond just what we consider as a coercive and military responsibilities. When Burma, Myanmar, became independent in 1948, it immediately faced a number of insurgencies. So it was challenged by uh, communist insurgencies. It was challenged by ethnic minority armed groups, such as the Karen National Union. And it was really the military that had to build the state, build the contemporary post-colonial independent Burma. And because in a lot of the areas where there were conflicts, the civilians obviously went there. So it was the military that represented this independent Burma and took on the roles of what we normally consider a civilian government would do. So administrating the territory that was fighting over against insurgents. So even though Burma, from its independence in 1948 until 1958, and then again 1962, was in some sort of parliamentary democracy, the military has always been kind of front and center in the uh, engagement of political and civilian affairs. What caught me off guard in your book about the Tamadol was the way that they allied with the left initially. They allied with the Socialist Party. I don't know if allied's really the right word. It's almost more the political arm of the Tatmadaw between 1962 and 1988. The, the part that you describe where they effectively build the state, I mean, that's to me, that's not a big surprise. Samuel Huntington wrote about how militaries oftentimes were a force of modernization in a lot of states back in his classic work, Political Order and Changing Societies. But it surprised me that they would have an alliance with the left because a lot of the military states I think of, especially in Latin America, within Southern Europe in the past, have all been associated with the right. Can you explain why they would be associated with the socialists? So yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question. So first, the BSPP isn't really an ally. It's basically created by the military. So the Tatmadaw created the BSPP. So first, when they came into direct control of the state in 1962, they formed a revolutionary council. And then they kind of justified them in place because they saw themselves as most competent, again, the most competent institution that can govern and administrate the state. 
Now, at this moment in Burmese history, the large majority of politicians and nationalists and of all persuasion in power centers were all left-leaning. So Aung San, who I've mentioned briefly, was also one of the founder of the Burmese Communist Party in his early years. Part of this is Burma's colonial experience under the British colonial rule was particularly exploitative and was considered very unfair to the large majority of the Burma populace. So there was this rejection when the independent politicians came in and when the military came in, it was really a massive rejection of anything the West had to offer, right? They felt that they were victims of exploitation, that most of the people who benefit from that colonial economy was a very selective group of people, mostly obviously Europeans, but also kind of what they considered outsiders that were brought in. So you have the migrants from what would have been British India and also the Chinese kind of middlemen, all these people that were considered by the kind of the native, quote-unquote native Bama population has been exploiting the Burmese economy. So when uh, these politicians and these uh, military people came into power, socialism was something that was popularly acceptable. So it was also an easy way, an easy ideology, an easy system that they could quickly adapt to their needs to justify taking control over the, the country. You're right that, especially during this period, most militaries were affiliated with the right wing. You can look at kind of um, the CIA-backed Suharto when he took over Indonesia and also the successive high military governments. They were all really right wing, pro-market, etc. So that does make Myanmar here quite unique because the military saw themselves as, again, the state builders. They had to challenge their biggest opponents at that stage, who were the communists. But instead of presenting something i.e. kind of more of a right-wing or a kind of a market-oriented economy, they basically try to hijack and co-opt that socialism idea that was already popular. So do you feel that the Tatmadaw has, has governed well? I, I know that they feel that they have, which is why they think that they deserve to hold on to power right now. And they've held on to power effectively since 1962, indirectly for a long time, and directly for the past two, three decades, have they governed effectively? So let's start with a very clear statement. In my opinion, and I think this is true widely, of course, the Tatman wall should be considered like a cancer. The military is basically the source of state terrorism against its own people. But when they first came into power, if you recall um, that in, in early history, that they formed a caretaker government in 1958. So between 1958 and 1960, uh, Nay Win, so he was kind of the figure that kind of created the modern Myanmar uh, military regime. He actually kind of cleaned house between 1958 and 1960. So the military at that stage in time from most historical sources suggested that the military was efficient, they were competent, and they were relatively popular. The, the independent Burmese government was facing a number of insurgencies. So it really wasn't much of a state. So the military was able to come in, clean house, um, established kind of more control. Uh, civilian partisan politics was particularly vicious. So military kind of came in seeing themselves as the neutral political actor who perceived himself as being the one that has the country's interests at heart and not involved in partisan politics. And that's how I perceive the military has always seen itself, right? That it is leading objective, nonpartisan political actor. But the reality is, when they came back into uh, direct power with the 1960 coup until 1988, as you've pointed out, they formed this revolutionary council, then a Burmese Socialist Program Party kind of government. 
where they had really extreme form of nationalized economy. And that obviously was a failure. I mean, the country uh, had obviously a lot of resources and was relatively wealthy, at least during British colonial rule. And then they made the country bankrupt. There were inflations, people were starving, there were poor medical system, people weren't getting education, all these problems, which led to, of course, the 1988 popular uprising and the failure and the collapse of that military-backed socialist government. And then when they came back in 88, it kind of reincarnated themselves as now more of a pragmatic authoritarian regime. Basically, they've removed a facade of needing uh, a socialist civilian party to run the country. They just ran the country as a pure military regime between 1988 and 2008. First as a state law and order restoration council, later renamed a state peace and development council. Now, between this period, 88 to 2008, they really kind of backtrack and move in a complete uh, different direction. And the phrase I used in my book, quoting R. Thompson, the military was just marching, right? They were marching, but now they've agreed to march in a different direction. So when it was the socialist program from 62 to 88, the military was marching towards building this Burmese way to socialism, building this socialist utopia. Clearly that fell in 88. So then they decided that, you know what, we're now going to move towards a different direction. They were going to introduce a multi-party, quote-unquote, democratic Myanmar, and also move towards a market-oriented and capitalist economy, effectively. And they did try to do that from 88 onwards. I mean, um, they tried to open up economy. They tried to attract foreign investors into the country for a variety of reasons, predominantly Western-led sanctions, the poor capacity of the state to attract and have infrastructures to allow kind of foreign um, investments to, to take hold in the country, prevented uh, the country from developing that kind of successful, productive economy. And again, that changed, of course, in 2008, when they finally allowed the constitution to be voted by the public. Voted is a bit of a strong word. There was a referendum, but in a highly oppressive environment. Nevertheless, this referendum allowed the, the next incarnation of the military's kind of idea of how Myanmar should be run, which comes to kind of our current contemporary era, which is what they call a disciplined democracy. So in the 2008 constitution that is now supposedly a basis of contemporary Burma, it is supposed to be this disciplined democracy. So I want to go back to the economy for just a moment, because I think in Burma, the economics, I think, blends together with the politics, because the Tatmada has a lot of control over aspects of the economy. I mean, they have their fingerprints all over it. Scholar Zoltan Barani has written in the Journal of Democracy, corruption is also much more pervasive in Burma, and it permeates political, societal, and commercial exchanges on every level. From what I've read about the country, it gives me the impression that it's very kleptocratic still in a lot of ways, that the liberalization hasn't necessarily been a true liberalization. It's been somewhat of a transition from socialism to something closer to kind of a market-based kleptocracy. And does that mean that from a political standpoint that the military doesn't want to give up power, not so much because they think they do a good job, but because they have economic incentives not to let go? Yeah, now that's kind of the key question, right? Especially if you put it into contemporary at the moment kind of perspective. I think a lot of explanations out there 
is that the military is primarily motivated by this economic incentive. So you're right, Myanmar, especially since they ditched the socialist agenda, the military, even during the socialist period, was kind of intimately involved with the economy. But especially after this move towards capitalism or market-oriented economy, they were front and center. So unlike some other regimes where there were independent, powerful civilians and capitalists that became involved in the regime, in the Myanmar context, it was still the military that had the real control. You had crony capitalists that emerged with nationwide presence almost during this opening up of this economy since the early 1990s. But it was always the military that was involved. They have these two massive conglomerates that are involved in pretty much every sector of the economy in, in Myanmar. And to ensure the military remains united and loyal to one another, they are um, the ones that uh, are the best funded. They have their parallel schools and medical systems that the normal civilians do not have access to. And this is all built up because of their monopolization over many aspects of the economy. So before the recent coup that, that occurred this past year, Myanmar was in the news because of the genocide against the Rohingya people. It's pretty much the only story that you would see for a long time. It opens up something that I don't think that a lot of Westerners recognize, which is when we think of a country like Burma, we assume that all of the people are Burmese, but it's actually a multi-ethnic country. Can you give us some background on the people themselves? Who are they? How diverse is this country? So according to the Myanmar's kind of official perspective, their own narrative, there are eight major what they call national ethnic races. Okay, so this is actually recognized by the Myanmar government. These eight major national races are the Bama, which is what we think of the kind of quote unquote the Burmese, but they're also the Kachin, Kaya, Kayin, Chin, Hmong, Rakhine, and the Shan. So these are the eight officially recognized major ethnic national races. And of, of those eight, then there's another, again, officially recognized, you know, the government considers indigenous people of Myanmar, another 135 sub-ethnic groups. And to be honest, most of these identities really are just socially constructed and perceived and built up because of these narratives. And a lot of these identities were all really more emphasized and became kind of internalized by the, the post-colonial Bama thinking because of British colonial rule, right? The British were obsessed about categorizing and, you know, kind of labeling people in different, different groups. And there are a lot of problems with this, this idea of this indigenous population and ethnic groups. So there's large Chinese populations in Myanmar who actually have citizenships. Where do they go? Do they belong in these official recognized groups? And actually, one of those groups is recognized as a Kokan, which is one of 135 ethnic groups. But really, they're just considered by some of the people in Kokan as well by others as Han Chinese. You say that these are officially recognized ethnic groups. Right. Why does it matter that it's officially recognized? So, especially after the military government, right, when they came into power from 62 onwards, they start really building this, these kind of identities, right? They're, they're particularly xenophobic. They were purges against Indians and Chinese uh, in the 60s and onwards. But the key here is from the kind of the mainstream perspective, if you're not considered as one of this official 
group, then you're not a native indigenous population of Myanmar. Therefore, you either don't deserve or shouldn't be a Burmese citizen. Now, they actually codify this with the 1982 uh, citizenship law, an idea that to be considered as a native soil, this kind of native indigenous uh, person, whether you're from this eight of the major ethnic races, national races, or one of the 135 groups, anyone else who doesn't belong to this group, then really you're kind of seen as the outsider. And this 1982 citizenship law basically excludes even people who might have already lived in Myanmar for a century or more. If you move to Myanmar in sometime in the 1800s, you're still not considered as part of this you know, native indigenous population because you'd be considered as migrants that were brought by the British colonial, kind of colonial government. So it's really an extension of their sense of nationalism that you've already mentioned before that seems to be very important in the way that their politics operates. I want to bring up something too, a quote that just struck me about the ethnic minority groups. You write, several ethnic minority groups, including the majority of the Rohingya populace, who had been allowed to vote in the 2010 elections were denied the right to vote. None of the major political parties ran any Muslim candidates either. So again, these senses of ethnic identity are playing a role even in the way that they operate politically. It determines who belongs and who gets to decide any of the decisions within the country. The main critical issue here is that there has been a systematic kind of state-sponsored institutional, structural, cultural, direct violence, any sorts of violence you can consider against this Rohingya populace. And the main thing is that the popular narrative is that these people, they're not just not indigenous to Rakhine state, but they're actually Bengali. So that's a very popular term that has been used widely by all sorts of people, including people you would normally consider to be more progressive and liberal, that would refer to the Rohingya populace as Bengalis, implying that they are migrants from neighboring Bangladesh. There's a lot of issues with this. First of all, the Rohingya population has been in their communities for decades, if not centuries. When people forget that uh, these borders are always kind of very flux, they're curious. I mean, the contemporary idea of sovereignty is, is, again, that's something that's very modern, right? It didn't really exist. People move back and forth. That shouldn't even be a subject to discussion. So I've always kind of, when people try to talk about whether Rohingya belongs in Burma and you know, what generation they're there, for me, that's the wrong question, right? They are a group, a large group of people that clearly have their own distinct culture, a distinct identity that recognize themselves as Rohingya. So they are Rohingya. There shouldn't even be a debate. If I call myself a Rohingya, I'm Rohingya. If I call myself a Taiwanese, I'm Taiwanese. So they've been there for a long time, but they've been portrayed as these neighboring Bengalis that's fled to Burma. And like you've pointed out, some of the Rohingyas had voting rights, had citizenship rights, but they were all deliberately taken away. So I've briefly mentioned about 2008 constitution that allowed kind of this transition from kind of pure military government to the disciplined democracy. So in the first election of that disciplined democracy in 2010, uh, a Rohingya actually represented the ruling party, the pro-military party, the Union Solidarity Development Party. So it's an actual Rohingya MP representing USDP after the 2010 elections, got elected, voted in, and actually sat in parliament in 2011. Now, in the 2015 elections, he was suddenly made stateless, effectively. He was no longer considered a citizen. He couldn't run as an MP, even though he had just served 
as an MP for for this country for the last few years. So by this stage in time, all the Rohingyas effectively lost their right to vote, and even what we had considered kind of the pro democratic party, the National League for Democracy, with its leader Aung San Suu Kyi, but even this kind of supposedly main opposition party, kind of went along with it. They basically also revoked membership of Rohingya party members. So party members that were considering themselves NLD, their membership got revoked from the party because the NLD said, well, they're basically just following the law of the land. So if the government determined that these Rohingya populists didn't have the right to vote, then, well, they don't have the right to be in our party. So who is Aung San Suu Kyi? So Aung San Suu Kyi really is the defining political personality of Burma for several decades. She really first came into prominence in 1988 after the popular uprising against the Burmese Socialist Program Party government. Uh, but her real claim to fame is because she is the daughter of Aung San, the founding father of the Tatmadaw, but also of the contemporary Burmese nation state. So she really got that aura as the daughter of Aung San. And then she was in the right place at the right time when the 88 protests came out. She actually spent most of her life prior to 1988 living overseas, in India and the UK in particular. So when she came back in 1988 to take care of her uh, sick mother, protests broke out. And from then, she, she basically became a key opposition leader protesting against the government. And during that period, she founded what would be known as now the main political party of Burma, the National League for Democracy. Um, and through her work as an opposition leader since 1988 up until at least 2010, uh, she was in different bouts of house arrest, which kind of added to that moral authority for her, right? that she sacrificed everything and was treated very poorly by the military government. And because of that part of her work in the early 1990s, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, when the National League for Democracy won the election in 2015, the NLD was able then to use their parliamentary majority to create the position of state councillor for her. So she has been the state councillor, which is kind of effectively de facto head of government, kind of like a prime minister. So again, this role was deliberately created for Aung San Suu Kyi. It was not something that was in the constitution that was drafted by the military, but this position was created to allow Aung San Suu Kyi to serve as the head of the government when the NLD won the election in 2015 and came into power in 2016. So 2011, Tatma effectively begin this process of political liberalization. Why did they do it? And many have, have called it a process of democratization. You're very clear in the book that you don't feel that it was truly democratizing. Is the end goal that they have in mind to actually produce democracy? Like, Are they trying to move towards that direction? Even if they're not doing it well, is that their own sense that that's what they're trying to accomplish? So I've consistently kind of referred to the 2008 period up until even today, kind of Myanmar's way to democratization or Demo's way to democracy. So when the military came into power in 1962, sorry, I have to go back a little bit back to history, they actually referred to what they were trying to do as Burmese way to socialism. So these are the actual words that the military, the Revolutionary Council and BSVP government referred to their role in Burma from 1962 up until its collapse in 88, that they're introducing the Burmese way to socialism. 
And this is where I see that parallel, where the military has effectively said, again, that marching, right? We're marching in a different direction, but now we're marching towards Myanmar's way to democracy. And this idea of democracy is the military's idea of democracy. It isn't what we consider, perhaps in a more liberal progressive context of what a democracy should look like. So it's actually in the constitution that it calls itself a disciplined democracy. It's in the constitution where it actually gives all these expensive powers full of military to remain actively involved in the uh, administration and, and in government. The military isn't simply uh, listening to the orders of the elected government to do things. It's written in where any electoral results, it doesn't matter who wins, that it will always be an enforced coalition government. So three key cabinet positions are always going to be reserved for active military officers. Again, it's written in the constitution where the Ministry of Home Affairs, the Ministry of Waters, and Ministry of Defense, their ministers are basically de facto appointed by the commander-in-chief and they have to be active military officers. And here's what's also interesting. The commander-in-chief of the military forces, all military forces in Burma, Myanmar, is Minalain, basically a non-elected military senior general. Again, written in the constitution where the commander-in-chief is not the president, it's not someone's elected, but an active military officer, the commander-in-chief, as the supreme commander of all armed forces, including the police, as a parallel government, where the military has all these parallel expensive powers uh, that's denied to the civilian government. So my understanding is exactly like you said, it's a parallel government where they have elections that kind of runs what they consider to be the domain of civilians. and then they effectively have 100% complete control over the domain of maybe the security apparatus is the better way to describe it. And from my understanding, even some aspects of the economy and maybe a few other things, but they have a domain for the civilian government. The first election, they had a former military officer win the presidency. Did they expect that they would be able to dominate both lanes of the political structure? So that's an interesting question, and there's obviously quite a lot of debate about this. I am still convinced that, yes, of course, the military is heavily invested and incentivized by the economic spoils of being in control, but that is not the motivation and main driving force of this Tatmadaw. We already said uh, in the 60s, they were the one pushing for this extreme socialist program. And when they realized that the socialist program was a failure, they went the opposite direction, trying to push for the opening up and a different kind of exploitation of their economy and trying to be engaged in the global political economy. And they are convinced, again, that this military is convinced they want to create this Myanmar's way to democracy of what they perceive should be. Well, the military remains actively involved, as you point out, in kind of national security affairs. They have consistently said the military and what the Myanmar state should be concerned about is basically unity, right? They want the perpetration of their national sovereignty. They want to have control over ethnic affairs. And that's reflected in this kind of holding of the three key ministries I pointed out, defense, border, and home. So home looks at basically you control police. So you control domestic security. Border affairs is basically a relationship with all these ethnic minority groups. And defense is clear, obviously, the control of all armed forces. So they are really, I think, motivated by their own kind of ideas of what a contemporary modern Myanmar nation state is, which prevents the fragmentation of the state. 
the economic factor is just that additional incentive. But that's not what, in my opinion, was primarily driving the actions of the Myanmar military for the last several decades. And I think this actually reflects why we've seen the coup now. Clearly, the coup has really brought serious economic devastation for the entire country. And the military itself will also not benefit from this. And that, to me, is the key because they're not primarily motivated just by economic financial wealth. Sure, that helps. And I'm sure a lot of people, individuals might. But as a systematic military institution, it is driven by their own identity and their own perception of what the Myanmar uh, modern nation state should look like, which is that the strong political role for military and that strong dominance over all ethnic and non-military units, and also that unity and the prevention of fragmentation of the state. Now, when you say the military, their sense of identity, I think it's important to stress that word identity, because it's not an ideology that's propelling them. It's the sense of their own professionalism, the sense of their ability to be the nonpartisan institution within the country. You've got a great quote where you say, the military has consistently viewed itself as being the responsible, nonpartisan guardian and builder of the contemporary Myanmar state. It's interesting because I I still don't know that they've done a great job, but that is how they view themselves. And so when we think of it this way, it's not about the exact policy per se. It's the way that they think that they're above politics. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, that's, that's why I try to say in my book is that you can see this trend where they always see themselves as the neutral party. So even when you see the collapse of the Burmese Socialist Program Party in 1988, and they reincarnated themselves as a national unity party, the military did not favor the party that they had basically created. Similarly, we briefly talk about the transition period to the disciplined democracy in 2011 when President Ten Sen the former prime minister of the military regime, but also an, was an active military officer prior to the election. Right? He literally retired from the military leading up to the election in 2010. You can even see then, between 2011 and 2015, yes, the military was also operating still then independently from the USDP government. So even then, with Tencent, the former prime minister and very recently retired military officer, they were still, in my opinion, operating parallel to each other. So when in the early part of Tencent's administration, the military was fighting the Kachin Independence Army. The president Tencent actually ordered them to stop their advance against the KIA, the Kachin Independence Army. And the military ignored the president, right? They continued their offense. Um, there were later, after a while, it might, things might have calmed down a little bit, but it wasn't that the military immediately stopped their advancement against the KIA. They continued their operations. So... During this transition period to disciplined democracy from 2011 to 2015, there's a few key political leaders that I think we should pull out. You have President Ten Sen, and you have uh, Sri Man, who was, again, a leading figure of the military regime. He was called Turash Man, which is basically an honorific gift of, you know, brave military person, personnel in, in the Myanmar context. And he was the speaker of the house. And when a number of military officers retired leading up to the 2015 elections and wanted to run as USDP candidates in the upcoming election. Simon, who was then the chairman of USDP, basically rejected their candidacy. They said, we will not select you as our candidates to run the USDP. And there was literally a night coup 
where Sui Man and his allies in his party were disposed from their party position. You know, military personnel went in and basically say, "You're no longer chair of the party," and this was because the USDP was acting against the interests of the military. So I do see irony here because I did say that the, the military sees itself as kind of the the neutral arbitrator and wouldn't be involved in party politics. But the USDP and these channels were used for the military, for active military officers to have a second career once they leave the military. So once they retire from military, the idea is that then they can run as USDP MPs and whatnot, so they have a second career outside military. But the USDP itself has consistently been operated, I think, in many ways, in parallel to the military. So it wasn't just simply an extension of the civilian arm of the military. You don't see particular kind of preference for the USDP in the recent 2020 elections. Initially, when the USDP complained about the issues about the 2020 elections and electoral fraud and whatnot, the military didn't really take side to the extent that you would assume that if the USDP simply served as an extension of the military. And that you do see this kind of consistent trend where the military sees himself as being the most important organization, and that the、uh, USDP is basically a back channel where retired people can go and retire, enjoy their life as retired civilians and politicians. But once you're out of the military, you are out of the military, and I think that's important to understand.、Uh, you see this trend where former strongmen of the military, once they leave office, they no longer have the same type of command they have. Over the active military officers, you've seen this with Nay Wing, who was the figure, right, that created you know the Social Forces Party from '60 to '88. After he left the military, the military officers might respect him and whatnot, but he was no longer able to command the government of the day, the military government of the day. Similarly, I've briefly mentioned about Ten Sen when he became president, the first、uh, civilian president of disciplined democracy. He didn't have direct control over Minang Lai and the Tatmadaw. That that's fascinating. Because I would imagine the Tatmadaw thought that the democratic type parties or, or the more organic political parties would be completely fractured, so that with their one quarter of seats within the legislature plus any seats the USDP would win, that they would have this commanding majority that would be able to run the country. But the reality is. It sounds like their side is far more fractured than the NLD has been. I'd like to ask you now about the other side of the political divide in the NLD. Why do they have such widespread support? Because they sat out the first election, which is the only reason why they probably didn't win, other than maybe a rigged election. They dominated in 2015, and they dominated in 2020. Why? So let's backtrack just a little bit. So the NLD's emergence into a political force, I should add, in some ways, actually quite ineffective political force, despite the wild support, is really again going back to 1988. So Aung San Suu Kyi and retired military officials founded the National League for Democracy. So in 1990, there was an election that was held by the military regime, which the NLD won by a wide margin. So it was a landslide victory, even in 1990. The military regime basically ignored the electoral results and said. Change our mind. The election was actually for delegates to write a constitution because you couldn't just hand power over to the NLD because there wasn't a constitution to establishing rules of the game of what a Myanmar democracy would look like, and that kind of ties up to my talking about this disciplined democracy. It took a long process of drafting this constitution to allow this transition from socialist to military government to this disciplined democracy. 
Now, why the NLD is so popular? I think there are some main reasons. One, it does have quite a wide network that other political parties don't have, so they have、uh, party branches in throughout the parts of the country.、Uh, and I've really mentioned about Aung San Suu Kyi's particular charisma. So she is really a very charismatic leader. She does have that aura that really get people believing in her. And a lot of that is because she is the daughter of General Aung San. So she has that personal charisma plus that kind of legacy that Aung San was able to afford to her. And then, like I've said, they do have that network throughout the country where there's a party presence, and no other party really can compete, you know, in that type of presence. And then they they have that also credential, that long history, because they came out from 1988, because they were kind of the party that lasted through all that military regime to continuously try to challenge the military. And they also represented that kind of idea of Bama Nationalist Party. A large majority of the country is still Bama. I think the figure is usually about seventy percent of Myanmar、uh, consider themselves as Bamas. So this is the Bamas Party of choice, National League for Democracy. The only party that really had the ability to win a majority to challenge the military, because it's very obvious, especially now, that the military and their kind of pro-military parties have no real support. They do not have the support. So the NLD was seen as the only effective party that could form a government that could、uh, bring about real changes, and that was kind of a, one of the main kind of slogan that a lot of NLD to win in 2015 was that they were the party of change, that they were the party that would change things in Myanmar and fix things. So before the coup, Aung San Suu Kyi was taking a lot of blame for having authoritarian tendencies, not just in terms of how she was treating. The genocide of the Rohingya people, but also just in terms of other aspects of her style of government. You've already mentioned that the USDP and the Tamadao they're clearly legacies of authoritarianism as well. There was a an article in the Journal of Democracy a few years back by Bridget Welsh, Kaiping Huan, Yunhan Chu, that said the legacy of authoritarianism. Remains deeply embedded in Burma's political culture, and the problem is compounded by a lack of understanding of how democracy should function. Is there a path towards democratization for Myanmar? So things are very depressing in, in Myanmar at the moment. It's really a, a regression. That regression is, I think, is the understatement, right? This is more than a regression. It's a complete reversal of what's happened in the last several years with the expanded pluralism and social political space. Now everything's gone backwards. We're probably looking at something that's close to what's happened between 1988 and 1990. This really kind of repressive authoritarian military regime again, where they're shutting down. Old spaces. They're censoring the internet again. They're attacking the media, etc. And then compounded with the fact that you have COVID, an economic crisis that's going to be a serious issue. At the same time, I think there is an increasing awareness, especially with the young generation, that what the large majority of the Burma population is facing now in the urban centers, whether it's in Yangon or Mandalay or elsewhere, is what the ethnic minority citizens. Have faced for decades, even when we've talked about this disciplined democracy between 2008, 2010, even under Aung、uh, San Suu Kyi and NLD, a large majority of the ethnic population didn't even benefit from that. You know, there's all this narrative in the West or, or mainstream media that oh, 2011 was democratization, things are getting better. For whom? For a large majority of ethnic population, 
did not benefit from this transition to the, the military's version of Myanmar's way to democracy. I mean, leave alone the Rohingya, we, we really know. I mean, there was an active, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide of, you know, about a million people that had to flee the country. But there were also intense fighting against these ethnic minority groups in Kachin and Shanstein and well elsewhere. So the positive here is that I think just now the growing awareness with Burma people saying, we now understand. We now understand what our ethnic brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers have been facing for several decades. So I think there is that new room for hopefully a genuine reconciliation. And you've seen kind of this national unity government, this self-declared government in exile, right? Uh, now trying to build bridges again, trying to reach out to these ethnic minority groups, promising real federalism, kind of real kind of autonomy for these ethnic minority groups, which is a positive step. You've seen the younger generation using the internet in very creative ways to also reach out to ethnic minority groups. But having said all that, obviously I am rooting for genuine democracy and the fall of the military regime. I think any real determinative factor for something like that to happen for a genuine democratization of Myanmar first still falls with the military. Right? We need to see a genuine exit of the military and at the moment, this seems very unlikely and difficult. How do we encourage the military to voluntary or involuntary exit from the political scene? So to end with a more positive, optimistic note, the military is also facing the biggest crisis it's ever seen, really, ever since it came into power in, in like 62 and 88. You know, 88 is probably more comparable to what they're facing now. But I think now there's a more genuine connection and the technology has allowed faster speed of communication. So this anti-military movement now has gained a lot more attention and people are able to communicate with one another within Myanmar, but also outside of Myanmar. You do see a younger generation of people forming regional solidarity movements who are all trying to promote this broader ideal world of democratization in Asia. So again, there's this active effort of linking these individual local context of anti-authoritarianism, whether it's anti-coup in Myanmar or anti-kind of the military politics in Thailand or anti-kind of Chinese shrinking of space in Hong Kong, now it's been linked to broader regional solidarity movement, which hopefully will allow new opening up of spaces to challenge these authoritarian practices. The most surprising insight that I got from your book was that the inability to establish a strong state capacity within Myanmar actually has opened up much stronger social capital among the people because they've had to make do where the state hasn't been able to provide services. So hopefully there is a story where democracy can find a way to eventually flourish. Unfortunately, as we've seen in so many countries, oftentimes it takes a lot of wrong turns. But your book is so well-researched. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thanks for having me. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening.
The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.